0: Um, We're going to move on to our next speaker, um, who is Jean Marazzo. Uh, Jean is professor of medicine from uh, UW, University of Washington in Seattle. Um, And she's going to talk to us about uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Never a dull moment.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, Ron. Good morning, everybody. It's really lovely to be here. Um, I have to say that the only way I could possibly come out looking good after hearing Dr. Benson do that tour de force is to focus on a teeny-tiny aspect of HIV medicine, and that is PrEP, and that's what I'm going to be talking to you about this morning. Um, You can see my learning objectives there, and I want to start with a couple of questions, both to get a sense of your practice around PrEP and also do some knowledge questions to see if you know Uh, some of the issues, but I don't see the question slides. I thought they were supposed to be first. Maybe they're not. Okay, there we go. Thank you very much. So my first question is, have you prescribed FTC-TDF or Truvada as PrEP to patients who are men who report having sex with other men? Just a simple yes or no question to see if you are actually prescribing this. Okay. okay, so actually 16% of you have, which and that number is going up slightly, I would say, as I've given these talks over the last year. So the majority have not, so this will be a good introduction and an update. What do you think about this? Did the FDA approve intermittent dosing of Truvada for PrEP in women? Yes or no? Okay. All right. So a third of you think that they did. So we will come back and talk about that. What about this? Has oral PrEP been shown to reduce condom use, so-called behavioral disinhibition, or risk compensation? Okay. All right. Good. Good. Good split. So a number of you think that it has and probably not without some justification in your own practices. And then finally, can tenofovir gel be used as a lubricant for anal sex? Hopefully this will wake you up. We will talk about it, I promise. All right, great, all right. Well, we have some really interesting territory to cover uh, with this group. So my first slide just really sort of talks about Uh, what PrEP is and why it might work. And actually, I think we missed my introductory slide. Could we maybe go back to that first one? Or can I go back to that first one that has the cartoon on it? There we go, okay. So first of all, just to define biomedical prevention, if you actually look it up, there's really no consistently used term, which I find kind of interesting because we throw it around quite a lot. My definition of it is a biological intervention that modifies a person's risk of acquiring a disease or a condition in the future. So the prototype biomedical intervention, I would say, is immunization, vaccination, right? But what I really want you to be thinking about in the background of PrEP, and as biomedical sort of practitioners, I think this is really important, there really, I think, is no pure biomedical intervention. I think we need to start thinking about biobehavioral interventions because the behavioral component is critical. If you can't see what this um, cartoon is saying, it's a woman watching TV, and she is listening to an ad that says, ask your doctor if taking a pill to solve all your problems is right for you, um, which I think is what a lot of patients expect of us. But the other side of that kind of contract of us giving people medications for prevention is that people really need to believe that these medications are going to prevent the outcome we're talking about, and they need to believe they are at risk for that outcome. So the modifiers of adherence in a healthy person, uh, whether you're talking about a statin, whether you're talking about malaria prophylaxis, whether you're talking about PrEP, are going to turn out, I think, to be very critical and relate to the benefit, I think, that people see themselves getting from these products, but also the risk they see themselves at for getting the infection. So I really want you to be thinking about that as we go through these data, because it's one of the key things, I think, that can help us make sense of some very disparate results in these studies. Okay, I'm going to go through these quickly. Sorry about that. Okay, so what is PrEP? Well, PrEP very simply is the provision of a chemopreventative agent at the vulnerable sites prior to actual establishment of infection with that agent. And this is just a graph or a cartoon from a really nice overview by uh, Dr. Garcia Lerma, who's at CDC and who's led some of the very great um, animal models looking at the efficacy of PrEP. And the idea that really got people excited about HIV PrEP is the rationale that to infect healthy mucosa, that means genital mucosa that doesn't have any ulcerations, doesn't have any active STI-related inflammation, um, you really need large doses of HIV. You need six, 10 to the six, so a million to a billion copies, really. So it's not a little dose that actually causes infection. In theory, the right drug at the right time could really undermine the ability of that founding virus population to really replicate and establish that necessary burden of infection. But time is of the essence. You clearly need high intracellular concentrations of active drugs, at least the drugs we're talking about, to start with PrEP to really get this underway early. The animal data for PrEP, which I will not torture you with, um, was really incredibly supportive of this concept. Um, People at the CDC initially began working on um, macaque, monkeys, looking at tenofovir originally. They used systemic PrEP, parenteral tenofovir, topical tenofovir, in a number of studies. And they were really able to shut down acquisition of infection of the simian HIV in these animals. And that's really what led people to get very excited about uh, tenofovir-based PrEP in humans. One of the things that these studies mention that I think is important is that in all of the animal models, though, and Connie alluded to this when somebody asked that question, is that the post-exposure prophylaxis component of quote unquote PrEP is really important. So you could give these animals PrEP um, up to a certain point before exposure, but if you missed that post-exposure dose, the efficacy of quote unquote PrEP went down. So really, when you think about PrEP, you have to think about a PrEP combination. It's really continuous levels of dose that are present throughout and after the exposure. So that's something that's really important. People will need to understand it's not really just pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's really peri-exposure prophylaxis. Okay, so let's start with a case. This is a theoretical case and I want you to get to get your thinking about this because I think this brings up a lot of questions and this is a very real sort of situation. A 25-year-old accountant appears in your office requesting PrEP. He is healthy and asymptomatic. He's had a history of treated syphilis. He reports having at least 12 male partners in the past six months. He engages in receptive and insertive anal intercourse. He mostly uses a condom. He's received hepatitis vaccines. His uh, exam is normal. His labs are normal. He's very educated about PrEP following the approval of FTC-TDF by the FDA. He states that he wants PrEP for protection it might provide, but also because he's really tired of using condoms. And he wants to stop. So, what do you do? Number one, confirm his HIV negative status and provide tdf FTC after reviewing the potential risks and benefits. Or do you say, I don't feel comfortable prescribing PEP because you're going to discontinue condom use? This is where it's good that you can answer anonymously, right? Uh, I think we need to vote. Do I need to do something to make the vote happen? Your way, okay, sorry. The timer's supposed to be on. We're waiting. It's, I think it's not... Shall I just take a hand count? I should. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know any of you, so feel free to just get out there with your opinions. Um, how many people would give him uh, prep, oral prep? Oh, it's going. Oh, you don't, have to, you don't have to expose yourselves. Go for it. You don't have to out yourselves, I should say. Okay so you can be honest, which is the whole point of this, right? Alright, let's see how wild you Los Angelinos are. Okay, so interesting. Fantastic. Okay, well let's um, let's talk about this. Alright, so let's talk about the data that underlay the decision to really make PrEP available for him, theoretically at least. So the IPREC study, is, I think most of you know, was the major study that looked at the efficacy of daily oral TDF FTC in men who have sex with men. And I just want to point out that there were 2,500 mostly young men. They actually enrolled the great target populations. And these were very, very risky men, much like the man in our case. They had a median of 18 male partners in the 12 weeks prior to enrollment, and the majority of them had reported unprotected receptive anal intercourse in the prior three months. So they were absolutely the target population that you really want uh, to get PrEP. What did they find when they did the study Well, the intent-to-treat analysis is shown there. You see the nice separation in the curves there with the protective effect of FTC-TDF on the bottom. There were 100 infections after randomization, 36, on the active arm, 64, and placebo for a reduction of 44%. That was a really big surprise to many people. So not Dr. Grant, who was a a big evangelist for PrEP, but, um, but in general, it was really, really very exciting. IPREX did look at behavior changes with PrEP use. They looked at STD incidents, and they did not see any change in the STD incidents over the course of the study. And then at CROI this year, they actually provided additional data that I thought was interesting. They looked at those outcomes, so biomedical outcomes of unprotected sex like syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea primarily. And they actually stratified it by whether the people in the study believed they were getting the active drug versus the placebo, because that would really theoretically be the best way to see if people were engaging in risky behavior. And it turned out that they really didn't see any difference. They didn't see any difference in self-report of of unsafe behavior. And they actually had started to analyze the STD data, but didn't have... Um, didn't have those data. So I think the only caveat here, I would say, is that these analyses are based on participant reports. And I think we're going to have to, in real-world settings, see what the effect of this is going to be on actual STD incidents. So those of you who said you wouldn't prescribe it, I think we really needed to get more data uh, about that. Um, I mean, you have to balance the unwillingness or reluctance to prescribe it with the fact that this guy is at incredibly high risk of HIV, right, given his situation. And some people would argue that a harm reduction approach is better than nothing, given our lack of behavioral counseling, by and large, to affect that high incidence. So just some really good, I think, meaty issues for discussion. Let's do another case. This is a 32-year-old healthy woman who wants to discuss the FDA's approval of, quote, a new medication to prevent AIDS that she heard about on the radio. Her husband is 39. He's known to be HIV positive. But he refuses to take ARVs as he feels well. He doesn't trust doctors. Her exam's normal. A rapid antibody test done in your office is negative. You send off routine labs, including routine chemistry. You discuss PrEP and you ask her to come back. Everything comes back negative, including a standard ELISA and Western blot for HIV. So she comes back 10 days later, ostensibly, to get the PrEP prescription. She remains eager to start it. She says she'll be fully adherent. She feels fine, but she felt a mild sore throat and myalgias just after her previous week's visits. These symptoms abated after 24 hours. So now what do you want to do? My slide's not advancing. Can you go ahead and I'll give you time to think about it. OK. Prescribe TDF FTC is prep. Ask her to come back in three months for follow-up testing. Two, perform a rapid salivary antibody test in the office. If that's negative, go ahead and give her prep. Three, send a plasma HIV RNA level. Four, perform both the rapid salivary antibody and a plasma HIV HIV RNA level. And it looks like we are good. Just seems like it's not really happening without the music. Okay, great. All right, okay, so a few of you want to go ahead and give her PrEP. Some of you want to do a rapid salivary test and do it, but the majority of you want to do what? What are you ruling out here when you do that, of course? You're ruling out primary HIV infection, which she is at significant risk for, given that she's in a discordant partnership, right? So what do we know about PrEP and the setting of acute HIV infection? Well, actually, in iPrex, Um, There was no resistance at all, no K65R, nothing in the 100 people who acquired HIV after enrollment. The caveat with that is that the people who acquired HIV after enrollment weren't really taking the drug. So they really, I mean, some of them were, but the vast majority did not have drug detected. Hence, that was why the drug was efficacious, right, in reducing HIV acquisition. However, there were three cases of resistance in ten seroconverters at entry. And what do I mean about seroconverters at entry? These were people whose screening antibody tests to get into the study were negative, just like everybody's were, but they actually went back and did HIV RNA testing on them, and they found that they were actually experiencing acute infection. So they did get some product. It was stopped as soon as they realized that, but they did get some product, and there was some resistance that occurred in those people. So I think the messages from this, because I think this is a concern, and it's going to be a bigger concern as PrEP rolls out, is that the lack of resistance in the people who acquired HIV is not surprising, given that they didn't have a lot of drug exposure. Clearly, in real-world practice, as this rolls out, we have to be very thoughtful about avoiding PrEP as monotherapy, if you even want to call it that, in people who have acute HIV infection. So you really need to be attentive to that, ask people about fevers, sore throats, rashes, all the kinds of things that usually get blown off, um, but really are very consistent with acute HIV infection. Um, I think it's a little problematic because in these studies, HIV was tested for monthly because we were really concerned about this exact thing happening. The CDC recommendations for PrEP use actually say every three months. Personally, I think you've got to tailor that to your patient's risk behavior. If you had somebody like our guy in that first case, I would be a little concerned with testing him every three months and I would encourage more frequent testing. Um, I think that that will be supported, obviously, by the availability of home testing and by the availability to get the rapid aura test. Okay, so where are we? And this is not a typo, actually. The evidence for PrEP efficacy with tenofovir based regimens, I put 2012 because I wanted to show you what the data were at the time of the FDA meeting that reviewed the indications for PrEP. So at the time of the FDA meeting, we had the IPREC study, and I already told you about that. And then we had two other studies that were cited, um, although the IPREC study and the Partners PrEP study were the main ones that went into getting the approval. So I'll focus on those. Um, The Partners PrEP study was a large study of heterosexual discordant couples in Uganda and Kenya. And there were almost 5,000 couples, almost 10,000 people. And that was one person who had HIV, one person who didn't. And what did they show in the study? They randomized people to daily oral Turata, daily oral, daily oral tenofovir, or daily oral placebo, and they showed an even more remarkable reduction in the risk of HIV infection. 67% for daily oral tenofovir, 75% for the daily oral combination pill. So that was probably the best efficacy we've seen. There was a smaller study that the CDC did in Botswana, also in heterosexuals, not discordant couples, just enrolled people who were uh, HIV negative, and they also showed a similar reduction with the combination pill. So really very robust data. So what happened at the FDA meeting? I was actually there, it was a marathon meeting, 13 hours, um, and it was really very interesting and vigorous discussion that I think should probably inform your thinking about PrEP You may know, of course, overall, that they did recommend approval of daily FTC-TDF for HIV prevention in three groups. And I've showed you the votes here. In men who have sex with men, the vote was 19 in favor and 3 against. Not surprising, I think, given the uh, IPREX data. In HIV-uninfected partners and discordant couples, the vote was 19 to 2, very favorable given those robust data. And in other populations, and who do you think is included in other populations? Who's missed in those first two bullets? Women, right? Women like our patient who was in that second case, heterosexual men, injection drug users, a lot of people. And the vote was much more split, 12 to 8. And that was really a very, very, very intense discussion. And I want to show you why. I think the consensus is that people feel like the molecule, the drug, clearly is effective ARV-based PrEP. But there are some caveats, and that's what really informed the 13-hour discussion. or wasn't, The discussion wasn't 13 hours, but it seemed like it was 13 hours. So here we are comparing the efficacy of PrEP in the different studies. And again, I've already told you about the partner's PrEP and um, TDF2 and iPrex. But there really are some serious caveats. When you look at the confidence intervals, remember a confidence interval is the range that includes the actual efficacy of the intervention. So in reality, it could be anywhere in that range, even though that point estimate that we got in IPREX was 44%. The lower limit of the 95% confidence interval in IPREX was actually only Um, 15%. It was very low. So actually, it meant theoretically that in the real world, we could see an efficacy of PrEP as low as 15%. Most of us would not be very comfortable putting out an intervention where you only saw an efficacy of 15%. In fact, we would be very unlikely to do that. So people were very focused on that. Overall, too, the adherence in iPrex was not fantastic. Less than 50% of men on the oral product arm actually had evidence of drug detection in their blood. And then you had another study that was cause for concern that was available at the FDA meeting. And that was the FemPrep study. That was a study of women in southern Africa. They were randomized exactly as the iPrex participants were and uh, to Truvada or to oral um, placebo. And what did they show? Well, they showed an efficacy of only 6% with a, um, a 95% confidence interval that went extremely low. Clearly, absolutely no effect. So what the heck was going on here? In FemPrep, which enrolled quote unquote high risk women, but they were really sort of average risk women. The only increased risk, I think, report they had to do was to report more than two partners in the last couple of months. So it wasn't incredibly high risk women. The women reported being very adherent. 95% said they always took their pills. They also had people bring back bottles with unused pills or empty bottles. And when you use those as a marker of adherence, it was incredibly high. They were young women and they saw an HIV incidence during the trial of 5%. I think I'm missing a slide here. Um, The problem was, and actually the point is in the title, which I I conveniently missed. Despite these measures of adherence, despite their young age and their risk of HIV, only 26% of these women had any drug detected in their blood. So they clearly weren't taking the pills, despite the fact that when you use the pill count, it actually looked like they were taking the pills. And this is going to be a theme I want to come back to and I'll talk about it right now. What we presented at CROI was a study that I led with my colleague uh, Mike Cherenji in South Africa. And this is a study called The Voice Study or MTN-003. And this study was designed to answer a couple of questions. The questions were, are oral Truvada and oral tenofovir effective as PrEP in women? general healthy reproductive age women in South Africa, Uganda, and Zimbabwe. There were three countries involved. And was that going to be comparable to the protective effect that you would see with tenofovir gel, which is a microbicide that had also been studied in the CapriSA 004 study, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. So what we did was to randomize about 5,000, exactly 5,029 women, actually, to one of those five arms and asked women to use these products daily oral tenofovir, oral FTC-TDF, oral placebo, tenofovir gel 1%, oral placebo gel 1%. And there was a lot of data to say that these were going to be acceptable and well-used products in this population. Well, if you're a clinical trialist or if you've ever even encountered a Kaplan-Meier survival curve, you will know that this is one of the most depressing pictures of life. Um, This is what we found. Um, there was absolutely no difference in any of the arms in HIV incidents over time. We followed women for about two years. We had excellent study retention. Actually, 95% of the expected study visits were retained. Women loved the study. They came back to the study. They got contraceptives. Actually, our pregnancy rates were low, even when women used oral contraceptives. So we know they were taking their oral contraceptives pills. But what did we see for HIV incidence, and what did we see for adherence? The incidence was 5.2% overall, which was about 1.5% higher than we actually planned for when we did the study sample size. We thought it was going to be about 3.7, actually. And sadly, at some of the South African sites, It was almost 11%. Incredibly high incidence in these young women. And what did we see with adherence? We saw exactly what Femprep showed. So when we asked women did they take their pills, we used audio-computer assisted self-interview. We used face-to-face interviews. We had women bring back unused gel applicators. We had women bring back untaken pills and empty pill bottles. All of that, throughout two years of the study, gave us no indication that, in fact, adherence was sadly less than 30%. So really, really remarkable. And actually, I think, probably despite the disappointing results of the study, to me, the main results are going to be looking at how we're going to design uh, trials in the future. Because it's no longer really okay, I think, to just ask people if they're doing what we've asked them to do. It brings up the issue, are we going to have real-time adherence monitoring with drug detection or other measures, which gets into all kinds of uh, questions. So really fascinating issues. So. Um, I think that the way I would put this together is summarized on this slide, which I think is a little complicated, but I think we've probably really alluded to a bunch of these. Um, I think that adherence probably is the overriding factor that can explain the results in these studies. Clearly, when you look at those drug levels in the FEMPREP and the voice trials, um, they tell a pretty, uh, pretty incredible story, a pretty articulate story. But I'm not sure that's the only thing, and that's what I think people can't lose sight of. Um, We know that, for example, oral tenofovir gets concentrated in the cervicovaginal tissues to a considerably lower extent than it does in the rectum. So probably anal exposure is much more forgiving of intermittent dosing or incomplete dosing then dosing would be in women. Unfortunately, women are in the short end of the stick in the biology of the PK um, in uh, in, uh, tenofovir there. We also know that concomitant STDs, one of my other passions, um, as many of you know, um, probably are also going to make a higher bar for protection. If you've got herpes that's activated, if you've got a disrupted vaginal microbiome, like BV, if you've got syphilis ulcers, I mean, clearly that's going to make it much more challenging for PrEP to protect against the virus. Obviously, partner's viral load. If you have a partner who has a viral load of 3 million, it's going to be pretty hard to really fight off that virus. And when you're looking at a population like we're seeing in some of the South African sites, where I'm sure these young women are exposed to people with acute HIV HIV infection pretty frequently, that's going to make it very difficult. So I would just remind you that there are a lot of things in addition to adherence, and then also behaviors. We know that anal intercourse, practiced pretty commonly by heterosexuals, actually. And even in South Africa, where people don't like to talk about it, at least to the providers, when we asked people on CASI, um, these women reported, about about 16% of them reported anal intercourse in the last three months. And people were quite surprised about that. I'm sure that's an underestimate. Obviously, if you're using a vaginal microbicide, that may not be so helpful. And if you're exposed at the anus, clearly the risk of transmission is much higher there, too. So I want you all to think about that. And also, vaginal hygiene practices, if women are douching, or doing other things to really disrupt their own protective mechanisms, that could make a difference. So let's just finish up with a final case to make sure you know about some other exciting uh, data. This is a healthy 20-year-old woman, this is a real story, who's HIV-uninfected. She's had an HIV-positive boyfriend for about a year. He's been in and out of prison twice. She doesn't know any details about the status of his HIV, but he quote-unquote seems healthy. You know how they say he looked clean, he looked healthy, didn't think anything was wrong with him. Um, see, hey, that on the STD clinic all the time. She cannot always persuade him to use a condom. She says she's heard that there's a cream she can use in her vagina to protect herself. And she asks if you can prescribe it. Okay. I think we are on to the ARS slide next, I believe. What do you do? Yes, I'd love to prescribe it as soon as it's available. No, I'm not convinced by the available data that vaginal prep as a microbicide works. Maybe, but I don't know enough about it. So go ahead and vote, please. Oh, boy. Great. You know, it's good when you have an air-asked question and everybody's all over the map. That means that people are paying attention and they also need the talk.
0: Okay. So what are the data
1: about... um, uh, pericoidal tenofovir gel. So Caprisa 004, how many people have heard of Caprisa 004? It's amazing that um, I think it has not really gotten quite as much press as we thought it did. It was presented in Rome at the IAS conference a couple of years ago and published shortly thereafter. So this was a Phase two BD trial in about 900 women. They were in very high incidence setting in South Africa in the KwaZulu-Natal area around Durban. And these women were randomized to either a placebo gel or 1% tenofovir gel, just to give you some idea. This was the same gel we used in voice, and it's got about 40 milligrams of tenofovir per application. So that just gives you an idea of what you're looking at there. And it's four milliliters of gel. So it's not a small amount of gel, and people do have discharge, I will say that. Um, They were advised to use this in context of vaginal intercourse. So 12 hours before and then 12 hours after sex, two applications maximum a day. And these were young women who were very similar to the women in the voice study that I mentioned. What did they show? Well, their curve looks quite a bit different than our curve here. You can see that the placebo arm uh, experienced a considerably higher HIV incidence, 9%. So again, similar to what we showed unfortunately four years later in voice, which is one of the sad uh, things, I think, about our study, um, versus 5.6% in the tenofovir gel arm. So that was actually Significant reduction of around 39%, and that was a really big surprise. First time that there was ever proof of concept that a topical microbicide could actually reduce the risk of HIV infection. The question is, you know, why didn't we see that in voice? And many people um, have been asking that. I think the thinking was that even if women in voice didn't want to use the gel daily, maybe they would have at least used it around sex. And we don't really have any indication that that was the case. So I think we'll come back to that, um, but we do have those data from Caprisa. What's happening with those data? Actually, because the FDA and even the South African regulatory authorities want at least two trials before they can uh, approve a drug, the FACS-001 study is a study that's being done just in South Africa, and it's basically replicating the Caprisa-004 study. So they're actually asking women to go ahead and use this gel in the same pericoidal pattern that they used in Caprisa-004. That study's underway, and the results are expected to be with us probably in a couple of years, which is sad, because it's a couple more years of 10% HIV incidence in some of these populations. The question is, would you really feel comfortable using the gel with just the Caprisa-004 data? And that's a very, very big debate right now. What else is going on? The Caprisa 008 study is actually an open label trial for former participants in the 004, so those women can get the seed gel through family planning settings, actually. So that's kind of a nice, novel thing. And then I think that the main message here is that we still don't know that these products were really acceptable. Clearly, they weren't acceptable to the women in voice, and they just didn't use the products. And that's a huge message. What will women use? to actually prevent HIV when they're so at risk for it. There is a study called the Aspire study that is testing a vaginal ring that I think is shown right here um, that is uh, loaded with dipivirine, which is an NNRTI um, that's very potent and hopefully will actually be uh, used. Um, Those results are expected in 2015. I think the question is, do we need to start monitoring real-world use? And I can tell you that in the Aspire study, they've actually started to implement Depivirine measurements um, in the women who are on the active drug arms. So a uh, lot of implications. And I think there's hope, but clearly, um, I think we don't know as much as we thought we did about what people are willing to do to prevent getting an infection that they may not see themselves at risk for or think they're gonna get anyway. What about anal sex? Well, interesting, a lot of people are clearly interested in this. Tenofovir gel is under study for anal use. If you're gonna have anal sex, you should use a lubricant. Um, So it would seem logical to use a lubricant, right, that's had some HIV activity. Um, So that's the thinking behind this. Right now, um, this is in phase two, a study in men who have sex with men. It's called the MTN-017 study. It's just expanded safety and acceptability. They're not looking at efficacy yet, although hopefully that will be planned. What they are looking at is a daily dosing phase and then a sex-dependent phase, very similar to what you're using in Caprisa. So people will be able to use this gel around sex, or they'll be asked to use it daily, and they'll be looking at safety, tolerability, and some other sort of markers of local immune activation. But I think it's gonna be an important study, and hopefully will give us some more options for men who sex with men, and for women who practice receptive anal intercourse. So what does the PREP pipeline look like? Um, This is actually uh, just sort of a sense of what's going on Um, in phase 2b. I already mentioned the pepivirine intravaginal ring, and that's in an effectiveness study. They're well under enrollment. Um, Some of you may have heard of some of the HPTN studies, which are looking at other classes for oral prep, including maraviroc with an NRTI or an NNRTI. HPTN-069 is looking at oral maraviroc plus or minus um, FTC-TDF. Um, there is a long-acting injectable agent. Some of you may have heard of rilpivirine, which is um, an NNRTI, and that's actually in phase one studies as a one-month injection. So you could think about that as depot prep similar, like, similar to depot provera right? So you could see women in particular coming in for their progesterone shot, although there is that little issue about progesterone and HIV, which we don't have time to talk about. Um, so So I think that's a very interesting concept in terms of maybe a way to address the adherence issues, maybe. And then just to let you know, there were some interesting studies at CROI. Uh, One involved an intravaginal ring similar to the dipivirine ring that was tenofovir actually. So that may be another option, assuming women want a ring, we don't know. Um, And then very interesting um, presentations on a parenteral long-acting integrase inhibitor um, that actually protected macaque monkeys perfectly. So I think that, in general, um, there's some hope ahead. I would say oral prep works with caveats, but we probably, even more urgently than the molecular mechanisms, the biomedical sort of interactions, need to understand risk perception and the biomedical, social, and cultural determinants of adherence, especially in high-risk populations. Um, Remember that I think a biomedical intervention almost always involves a behavioral intervention, very few, unless you put it in the water or you put it in the air. Um, it really isn't gonna be uh, purely biomedical and that has major, major implementation implications because even if it works, if people aren't gonna use it, it's not gonna work from efficacy to effectiveness, right? I think there's some support for topical prevention. Studies are ongoing. Keep your ears open for results on the FACT study, rectal tenofovir gel and the depivering ring. And with that, I'll stop and take some questions. Thank you very much. I wanna acknowledge the folks who helped with slides. Sorry about that. I tried to. Talk. Oh, do we want to do these again? Okay, sorry, I have to redo these again. Okay, so it's not this one. That uh, that one. What is this? This is not my question. Okay. Did the FDA approve, FDA approve intermittent dosing of FDC TDF in women? Go ahead and vote, and I will, in the meantime, look at some. Card, so I think Ron is vetting them for me, which is very nice of you. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Opportunity to revisit that. The answer is no. Intermittent dosing was not approved. Only daily dosing was approved. So when your patient comes in, male, female, whatever, and says, I'm going to Palm Springs for the weekend, I'd really like to you know, get some prep to take for the party, it's technically not approved. Are people using it that way? They are. If I was doing that, personally or professionally, I would probably make sure that people took it for a week before and a week after, but that is completely off, um, not not addressed in the FDA um, guidelines, okay? All right, has oral prep been shown to reduce condom use, yes or no? Okay. Technically, no, um, so technically, at least in the IPREC study, and most of you got that right, um, the self-report did not indicate a, an increase in risk-taking. Remember, I think we still need more data in the real world as this rolls out, so I think you're correctly skeptical. Next slide. Can tenofovir gel be used as a lubricant for anal sex, yes or no? Probably not asking it in the right way, because theoretically. You're going to ask my
0: question. Okay,
1: great. Thank you. Okay, so yes, theoretically, you c- it can, and I already showed you a study that has is underway. The issue is it's not available, nor has it been shown to be safe in enough of a population that we would say it really should be or can be used. So, great. Thank you. All right, I think Ron's going to ask some questions.
0: First question. Um, in serodiscordant couples, are there any data on the effectiveness of combining both the treatment of the infected partner and PrEP for the seronegative partner?
1: Yeah, great question. So in the Partners in Prevention study that I mentioned, they provided treatment to the HIV infected partner using the um, current country guidelines, and in their New England Journal paper that covered the efficacy, they have a beautiful chart that stratifies by subgroups, and in the subgroup, in whom partners were also being treated for their HIV, and the patient in the study, or the participant, got PrEP, there was a combined effectiveness advantage. So clearly, treating the partner in a discordant couple, I think, is for many reasons uh, probably the principal intervention uh, for prevention of transmission. But PrEP in the HIV negative partner could certainly be additive, depending on the context.
0: Um, In that same vein, for uh, a couple, so discordant couple, who want to have children, Mm -hmm. If uh, the male partner let's say is positive but undetectable mm-hmm. and uh, and the female partner is uh, yeah. HIV negative what would you recommend
1: yeah, I mean, people are clearly using tenofovir um, in this situation. It is not approved. It was not addressed in the FDA discussion. But clearly in the obstetrical world, um, that is being done. I think people feel that obviously treating the partner, the infected person, is going to really reduce the risk to very, very low. And there may be some additional benefit. We don't know. The question is, is it safe? And um, we don't really have great data in the periconception people. To period for exposure to tenofovir-based drug. We've got pregnancy registries where you know women were treated with tenofovir during pregnancy, but the question is, in the at conception and very very early, is it safe? And we don't know. So it's really a risk-benefit conversation you need to have with the patient. Can't tell you much more than that. But people are interested and are starting to figure out ways to study it.
0: Um, next question is: uh, Were there's any uh, data from questionnaire uh, asking the women in the voice mm-hmm. study about what some of the barriers were to
1: practice? So, great question. Uh, yes, we've gotten, we've got several ancillary studies in voice, some of which were designed not surprisingly um, quickly after we got the PK uh, drug level results. We're doing focus groups, uh, hopefully in the next couple of months, and we're going to stratify the participants by whether or not they ever had drug detected. And we're basically going to say to the people who never had drug, look, we know you didn't take the drug. What's up with that? and be very direct and almost confrontational. In some ways, I think people have said, maybe we were too nice. Maybe we were too, you know, sort of, like, accommodating. I mean, I don't think that's true. But I do think we need to be direct, because this is our last chance to really figure out what the heck happened. I can tell you that some barriers women told us about throughout the study in, in various ways were partners, were often, male partners were often not supportive of them being in the study, particularly in South Africa, um, partners viewed the participation in the study as a risk of an admission of risk for HIV. Some people were confused and thought that these women already had HIV because they were in the study. And then the stigma of using HIV drugs, gigantic, as I think many of you know, especially in these countries. Um, so women didn't want these products around in their houses as if people were going to see it.
0: So. Uh, is, was there any indication that there were GI absorption problems, for example, in, in the women? voice or, or some of the other
1: stuff? Uh, good question. There were no indications. And in fact, in studies that have looked at the sensitivity of these assays for detection of tenofovir in the blood, whether you use it vaginally or orally, these assays should be This particular assay that we use should be positive within an hour with a sensitivity that's well above 97%. So it's a really great assay. You take the drug. You should absorb enough for it to turn positive. So I can't blame it on GI absorption or the assay I wish I could
0: okay and, and just a last question with regards to the, that same uh, aspect of, of uh, correlation between drug levels and effectiveness um, did you have any evidence that education and social acceptance of a um, of prep may have had some Great,
1: great question. I didn't present this, but we did look at predictors of drug detection. And we only tested for drug in about 773 women. So we haven't done testing on the whole group. So that's a bit of a caveat. But the predictors of detecting product, women who use the product, were women who were older than 25, women who were married, and women whose partners were older than 28 years. So who are those women? They are women in stable relationships, who probably have a lot of autonomy over their lives, at least to the extent that they're able to. They're very much women who were like the women in the partners in prevention study, the discordant couples. So those are the women who experienced the lowest rates of HIV infection as well. So very, okay. very challenging.
0: Well, thank you very much. We have H- a number of other questions, but I think given that the time, we'll uh, save those. You can come on up and talk during the coffee break. So we're gonna take a 10 minute break, come back promptly at a quarter of, Uh, We're a little behind, but I think